I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. The sermon text in the bulletin is Romans 4, but I thought we would uh, turn to Ezekiel 16. A bit of a longer chapter, but a very powerful chapter, a very graphic chapter as well, and one that is important for us to uh, wrestle with as we think about our standing in Jesus Christ. So Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel receives this vision as he is in exile in Babylon, and as he is in exile, God reveals to him the wickedness of the city of Jerusalem as it has rebelled against God, but after a long uh, vision of God's judgment to come upon Jerusalem, there's a great turn at the end of this chapter, a a similar turn to what you see in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God, right? The great turn by God's grace as he takes those dead and makes them alive. So listen for that turn as it comes later in this chapter. So Ezekiel chapter 16, we'll read the whole chapter beginning at verse 1. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare." When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of silver, which I had given you, and made for yourselves images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. 
Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God, and you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and you still were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea and even with these, with this, you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment, adulterous wife who received strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them, that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as a woman who commits adultery and shed blood or, and shed blood are judged, and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more. So will I satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm... And will no more be angry, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and her children. And you are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. And your elder sister is Samaria who lived with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister who lived to the south of you is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations within a very little time, you were more corrupt than they in all your ways." 
As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and your daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I remembered them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteously by all the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. And I will restore your fortunes in in their midst that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her and for the daughters of the Philistines. Those all around you despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord God. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet... Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame, When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. We're going to turn now briefly to our catechism, Lord's Day 23. It's in the back of the hymnal that we sang from before on page 881. There's three questions here as we have come now in the catechism to the end of the Apostles' Creed, looking at the various articles of that creed in how God saves us and redeems us in Christ. And Lord's Day 23 is now going to ask for the benefit of that, the help of believing all of these things. So question 59, I'll read the question and we'll respond together with the answer. But how does it help you now to believe all this? That I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. Question 60 on the next page. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. 
Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it no other, in no other way than by faith alone. So far from the catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the psalmist in Psalm 24 asks this question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Now, if you look, think back with me to the time of Israel, and even the time that we read about in Ezekiel, Jerusalem was situated on that hill. And so, for example, later in the Psalms, you have the songs of ascent. So that as the, the, the people of God journeyed and pilgrimed to Jerusalem, they would ascend the hill of the Lord to appear before God in the holy place. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Jerusalem was the place of God's house. It's where he dwelt. It's where his people met with him, communed with him, and came to know him. But as Israel's history um, continued, and as God established Jerusalem and gave them every good thing, rather than bringing honor and glory and worshiping the Lord, they took the good things of God and used them instead in their idolatry. Throughout Ezekiel, as we read, in very graphic terms, this idolatry is depicted as a kind of spiritual adultery. And so Ezekiel, in this long narrative here, recounts to us the history of Jerusalem, that Jerusalem might remember the days of her youth. And it's worth briefly thinking about this. We're actually going to consider this in more detail Thursday at Bible study, so feel free to join us Thursday, 7 o'clock on Zoom. But in very brief detail, we can kind of think through Jerusalem's history as Jerusalem was to then stand, because of what God did to them at the end of this chapter, Jerusalem was to stand as a witness to the nations, what God could do to those who were dead in their trespasses and sin as Jerusalem came to be. What God can do to those who are stuck in their sin and their misery, and how God could take them out of that and make them righteous and heirs of everlasting life, which is what the Catechism teaches us. In many ways, the catechism kind of could be pictured like this mountain, the hill of the Lord. We're found at the bottom of it in the beginning, right? How do you come to know your sin and your misery? How do you come to know that? Well, the law of God tells you that you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. But my nature is inclined to hate God and my neighbor, and therefore I am stuck in my sin and my misery, but the catechism doesn't leave us there, right? At the base of the mountain, it then calls us by the grace of God, empowered by his spirit, to ascend the hill of the Lord in Christ. So that now in the catechism, we began with sin and misery. And now we make this wonderful confession, one too great to even comprehend in its entirety, that I am righteous before God. And Israel, and in, in, in specifically Jerusalem and Ezekiel, is meant to stand as a witness, a testimony, a light to this reality that God can take those dead in trespasses and sin 
and make, put in their lips a true confession that I am righteous before God and an heir of life everlasting. So let's just very briefly walk through Israel's history as it's held out to us here. And afterwards, I want to ask uh, two questions um, that I think will be helpful uh, for us. Now, Jerusalem's origins, right, the beginnings of this city are quite dubious. You might recall that originally when Israel came into the land of Canaan, Jerusalem was already an established city. In fact, as Ezekiel is reminding us, her, its father was, uh, uh, was a Hittite and its mother an Amorite. They're Canaanite peoples. It has pagan orange, uh, origins. And as Israel comes into this land, they find this city that de- um, abandoned. They find this city as one that was not cared for by its inhabitants. And so God takes this city and makes it the very city where he would come to take up residence in Israel, right? It has a a pagan origin. It doesn't have the kind of origin like Abraham, right? Abraham was one who followed the Lord, but rather it has a, a pagan origin as a city. But God beautifies her. God passes by her and comes to her and makes him, makes her his own. And he lavishes every good thing. He even within that city establishes the king, and in the king, uh, king David, and in that city, uh, David, as he beautifies the city as a depiction of what God is doing to Jerusalem, he fills it with gold and silver and every precious jewel. In fact, you're reading Kings that silver was as common in Jerusalem as stone. The, the, the amount of beauty that was lavished upon the city of Jerusalem was incredible. And it became something that the world marveled at, right? The Queen of Sheba coming to see what God did to this city and is doing in this city. And God had provided for them protection. He had provided for them safety. He had provided for the city beauty and everything they could imagine. Oil and honey to fill their bellies. Everything God did for them a work of his grace, taking them from nothing, taking them from abandoned and making it a city beautiful. But, as the story continues, it says that Jerusalem came to trust in her beauty and began to play the whore, as Ezekiel says. She engaged in the spiritual adultery, making alliances with Egypt and Assyria and going after them and with them, their gods. And so rather than looking to the Lord, their God, their husband who cared for them and loved them, they began going after these other nations. So God, in very graphic terms, in Ezekiel describes, judges her, removes all the good things that he had lavished upon her that she might remember the days of her youth. He, in a sense, brings her back to the state that he found her in. And he brings these judgments upon her through the nations as they are the very ones she had looked to come and bring judgment upon her. The Chaldeans coming and destroying the city, taking their men and women and children into exile. And Jerusalem is left in a desolate state, an abandoned state. Dead in all respects of that term. Dead in their idolatry, dead in their sin and their misery. And they became a proverb, a byword to the nations around them. The city that was once so grand, so magnificent, now lies desolate. Verse 
Jerusalem becomes no different than the pagan nations around them. And in fact, much worse as Ezekiel describes here. Far worse than even the pagan nations around them. Their lot was no different than those around them anymore. It was a common lot of sin and misery in which all the earth in that sense was partaking of. But as we said earlier, right, the story of Jerusalem doesn't end there. Rather, God in his grace promises them at the end of Ezekiel that though they have broken covenant with him, God will remember his covenant that he made with her in the day of her youth. He says that in verse 60. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. And all the shame that she had, all the shame that she um, was, was paraded with among the nations will be remembered no more. Never again, as verse 63 says, will you open your mouth because of your shame when I atone for you, right? To atone is to, to cover over, right? You remember how she was found in, an, in a state of nakedness early on, right? Abandoned as a baby. But God came and clothed her and beautified her. But then in his judgment, he, she was again found naked. But God says, I will atone for you. I will again cover you. For all that you have done, declares the Lord God. In what sense will God come to atone, will come to cover her shame? Well, ultimately, as we look forward, and we don't have time to really draw out all of the links here, but as we look forward, God would ultimately clothe them with the very blood of his son. How will God take those dead in their trespasses and sins and cleanse them? How will God again beautify them? How will God cover over their nakedness? By sending his son to die in their place, to bear in, his, in himself their shame, to bear in himself what they have done, so that his blood might atone for all that you have done. Right? Notice the, 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 the comprehensiveness of that final verse. It's a marvelous verse to, to really think about and to spend time upon. When I atone for you for all that you have done. We read this, this terrible tragedy in Jerusalem and the grossness of her sin and the greatness of her shame. I mean, the, the, it's, it's told in a very graphic way that we would know the, the, the misery and we would know the weight of what sin is. But God says, when I atone for you for all that you have done. That is a staggering promise from the Lord that he will come and take you what all that you have done. Every ounce of it, every deed, every thought. He will cover over. He will clothe so that no longer will you feel shame for that. But now you will be righteous before him. And in this sense, Israel, uh, rather Jerusalem stands as a light to the nations of God's grace and of his mercy. One commentator, Ian Duguid, said this, that the nations will view Jerusalem as an object lesson 
of the wideness of God's mercy. We might also add the comprehensiveness of God's mercy. Wide to include all, comprehensive to include everything that has been done. And this, we need to know this. Because when I make that confession, I am righteous before God, we might have in the back of my mind, but there's still this. But I still struggle with this sin, with these thoughts, with this action. But, right, right, we might have this in our back of our minds, right? We say with the catechism, I am righteous before God as I stand in Christ. But... I've thought that. I've had these thoughts of you. When I atone for you for all that you have done. We can make this confession. I am righteous in Christ before God. Without anything behind that. Without anything nagging at us. As we rest in the fact that when God covers over our shame and our sin and our misery, he covers and atones for every last bit of it. (laughs) This is the grace of God, the wideness and the comprehensiveness of his mercy. And it's why we then, with confidence in Christ, as his blood covers over every last stain, every last thing we might feel shame for, as his blood covers over all of that, we then can answer the psalmist, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? The one found in Christ. And as I ascend the hill of the Lord, I do so not with hesitation of saying, well, there's something that's holding me but I do so with boldness and confidence as I approach God's throne of grace. You see, we need to know, as Ezekiel uh, puts it for us, the graphic nature of our sin, the weightiness of it, that we might then recognize the marvel of God's grace in cleansing us from every last bit of it. And that we might also know the great length that God went to cleanse us and to cover our shame. You know, we can say with the Apostle Paul, and I know it's a verse that I often will appeal to and think about, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, right? And that's kind of just, it could stand before us as just a proposition, right? He became sin for us. And, but Ezekiel shows us the grossness of what that is. He became sin for us. And the revulsion we might have in reading Ezekiel 16 is the revulsion that was had to Christ. It's why in Isaiah chapter 53, it says no one would look upon him. They despised him. Right? Men would turn their face from him. He who knew no sin became sin for us to cover us in every last bit of our shame that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Without any hesitation, I say, I am righteous before God in Christ, an heir of everlasting life. This reminds us also then that there is nowhere else we can go. There's no one else we can go to 
who can cleanse us and who can truly cover our shame as Christ can. I mean, this is often, right, when we see the world around us, right? We've talked about our own hearts, even as Christians, right? We still have that hesitation. We need to believe this. We need our faith strengthened in this promise. But think about even those outside who are seeking to cover their shame without Christ. And often it's a matter of dulling the senses, whether it's through medications or drugs or alcohol. We need to dull ourselves to our shame because we feel it so acutely, so intensely in ourselves. We seek to parade it around us. If we celebrate our shame, well then maybe we won't feel its weight and its guilt anymore. But none of that works. Maybe if we legislate it, maybe that'll remove the shame from us. It's only God who can atone for all that you have done. And, he, and only in Christ and through his blood will you find your shame not just merely covered over in the sense that it's there but hidden, but covered over in the sense that it has been washed away. As the blood of Christ comes over you and pours over you, it sprinkles you clean so that your sins, your shame is removed from you as far as the east is from the West. Now, there's much more to say about this, but I want to end with just two questions, two sort of questions of further application as we think about this. In light of what we've been talking about, I want to ask for this first question, how ought the Christian, how ought you as a Christian to view yourself? I think at times we get stuck in my sin and my misery, right? And we often think, well, it's, it's my total depravity that I only can focus upon. But the Christian who is in Christ has been renewed. You, you are atoned for. Your sins have been washed away. You are a new creation in Christ. New faculties, new things, as the canons of Dort tell us out of all documents, tells us that new qualities are infused into your will. And into you that you might love the Lord and do his will, not perfectly yet. And therefore the Christian is not one who ought to think of himself or herself as totally depraved. But renewed in Christ, a new creation. And one who has a new man and who's walked by the Spirit who now dwells in you. There's a great book, it'll be in the, the book table, another plug here, <laughs> it'll be in the book table by Anthony Hokema, uh, the, Christian, uh, the Christian Looks at Himself or something along those lines. A helpful book to think about. Um, I think it'll be there, actually I have it with me, it'll be there if somebody wants to take it. But it's a helpful book for us to remember that our view of ourselves now, not as we look at ourselves in ourselves, but as we look at ourselves in Christ as loved by him, as belonging to him, our view of ourselves ought to be positive. Because when we think about ourselves in that way, it brings glory to Christ. It shows our gratitude for what he has done in taking us from dead in our sins to now giving us a statement of identity. I am righteous before God in Christ. Right? That's a statement of identity. It's who I'm to think of myself as. And therefore, I'm ought to live like that, right? It doesn't give license to sin. But as such, I ought to pursue righteousness with all of my efforts. And so we ought to view ourselves in that way. How ought we to view ourselves as Christians, as righteous before God? And secondly, very briefly, how, am I, how ought I then to view my fellow Christians? 
Now, this is a very important question, a one that we can't deal with entirely. But it means, therefore, that I ought to view my brother and my sister charitably from a heart of love. As God has been gracious to them, so too ought my perspective and my judgment and my looking upon my brother ought to be gracious as God is gracious toward them. This is said even in the canons of Dort. It says this, and I would love to spend more time on this, maybe another, uh, another Lord's Day. It says this, following the example of the apostles, think of the way Paul addresses the Corinthians, right? Despite all of their sin and the grossness of it, right? Paul says to the saints in Corinth, right? To the holy ones in Corinth, right? Following the example of the apostles, we are to think and to speak in the most favorable way about those who outwardly profess their faith and better their lives for the inner chambers of the heart are unknown to us. We ought never to judge one another as if we are God, right? God alone knows the heart. And we, therefore, on the basis of God's own mercy to us, ought to judge others in the most favorable way in how we speak and how we think about them. And so as we've thought about here rather too briefly, the fact that God has taken us, but not alone, but he's taken us together as brothers and sisters from our sin and our misery to ascend the hill of the Lord in Christ, that we might on top of that hill from his city, the city of Zion, proclaim loudly and boldly, I am righteous in Christ before God an heir of life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of what you have done for us in Christ. You've taken us from our shame and you've covered it over with his blood that it might be atoned for, washed away from us. Father, we ask then that as we think about our life in Christ, that our focus would not be on ourselves and even on the lingering sin that is in us that we need to put to death, but that our focus would be on the fact that Christ is ours and we are his, that he has made us his own, that he clothes us with his righteousness, he fills us with his spirit that we might walk in his ways. And so teach us to do this more and more. Strengthen our faith in your promise to know that you've atoned not just for some, but for all that we have done. Father, thank you for your wonderful grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.